If you would, please turn in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 1. Today is the beginning of a new sermon series that will last the month of December. And as you can see in your bulletin, I've entitled it, Let Earth Receive Her King. It's a title that tells you something about the focus of this series, which is the King and His Kingdom. And it's a title that's appropriate because of the season that we've entered into. You know, a season of gifts and wreaths, lights and trees and carols. And thinking of carols specifically... You'll notice that a lot of them make mention of the king. And just to illustrate, I I want to sing portions of some well-known carols for you. You'll recognize them. As, As Molly just played. Born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. And then we've got Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. Then we've got... What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping. This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him, Lord, the babe, the son of Mary. Some of you will be grateful I had five more listed. (laughs) But I think I've made the point. During this season, we are singing continually about the coming of the king. And it's my hope that this series would assist your heart in preparing him room as we think about his kingship and kingdom. But here's a question to begin with. Is the idea of the king and the kingdom just a New Testament thing? You know, that we see explode on the scenes in the pages of the Gospels with the birth and Ministry of the Lord? Absolutely not. The kingdom 
of God is a central theme that is woven throughout the entirety of Scripture from beginning to end. You know, in my research on this series, I found an essay written by a professor of biblical studies at Bellhaven in Jackson, a man named Jeff Brannon. And Dr. Brannon makes a big statement in his opening paragraph. He says, The kingdom of God represents the overarching theology of the Bible throughout all of the scripture and thus throughout all of history. God is working to bring about and to establish his reign throughout the entire earth. So that's a big statement, isn't it? To say that something represents the overarching theology of the Bible. And it sounds big because normally when we think about the kingdom of God, it's a subject that we relegate to the parables of Jesus or the Sermon on the Mount. Dr. Brandon is making the case that it is the overarching theology of the Bible as a whole. And if that's true, and I think it is, just think how much we're missing when we read and interpret our Bibles without giving any thought to the kingdom. And I want to tell you that once you start looking for it, and once you know what to look for, you will find the kingdom of God everywhere, from Genesis to Revelation. And once you're looking for it, you'll have a better idea of what God is doing, not only in Scripture, but in history. His kingdom come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so my goal is to begin in Genesis today, on this first Sunday in December, and then end in Revelation on New Year's Eve. And in that time, work to give you a fuller picture of the king who was born in Bethlehem as well as his kingdom. So I mentioned that once you know what to look for, you'll see the kingdom theme everywhere. And so here at the start, I should probably tell you what to look for. And this begins by defining the kingdom of God. What is it? And I have a very helpful, very easy, very simple definition. It is not mine. It comes from the author Patrick Schreiner. And it's a very simple definition. It's one that's going to help me stay focused as we work our way through the storyline of Scripture. And it's this. The kingdom is the king's power over the king's people, in the king's place. I'll repeat that. The kingdom is the king's power over the king's people, in the king's place. Power, people, place. You've got to have all three to have a kingdom, don't you? Imagine trying to have a kingdom without power. How would you have a kingdom without a sovereign Lord, if you have people in place but no power, what are you left with? A chaotic, unorganized, dangerous society. You've got to have 
power. You also have to have people to have a kingdom. What good is a king who sits alone in his palace in the middle of an uninhabited, empty land? Proverbs 14, 28 speaks of this when it states, Without people, a prince is ruined. I mean, what is a king if there's no one to bend the knee before him? What is a king if there's no one to plead to him for justice? What is a king if there's no one to ask him for help? You've got to have a people to have a kingdom. Third, you can't have a kingdom without a place. Right? The people have to have a homeland. The king has to have a fiefdom. I thought of the example that uh, we've just ended college football season, or at least my alma mater has ended its college football season. <laughs> but it's hard to imagine a coach and a team not having a home field surrounded by cheering fans in the stadium. Now, I know it wasn't always that case, but it is now. And it's hard for me to imagine a coach and a team not having a home field, and it's even harder for me to think of a king not having a realm to rule over or a place for a people to call home. You've got to have all three, a powerful king, a people, and a place. So that's what we're looking for. The kingdom is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. And we're going to apply that definition today and we'll continue to do so as we work our way through this series. So let's pray and then open our Bibles to the very beginning. Almighty God, if it is true that this idea of Kingdom is one of the overarching themes of your word. Then, Lord, it will help us so greatly to understand who you are and what you're doing and what is your purpose for us. So, Father, as we look to your word, I do pray for clarity and I pray for the work of your spirit. We do remember this morning that faith comes by hearing. May we never forget it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I don't have a text to read to you as normal. I'm just going to be skipping around in Genesis. And I want to begin by reminding you that there is no kingdom without a powerful king. And our Bibles begin by introducing us to him. What are the first four words that we read in our Bibles? In the beginning, God. What does that tell us? That before there was anything else, there was God. He is the eternal and everlasting one that has always been and will always be. He has no origin, but has eternally existed in and of himself. 
Our catechism is helpful in answering the questions of who or what is this eternally existing being who was before there was anything else. Our catechism says God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So God is a spirit without a body like we have. Which means he needs no oxygen to stay alive. He he does not need to consume and burn calories to stay warm or have energy. He needs no sweat to cool him off when he overheats. He needs no bed in which to sleep. He is an eternal, infinite an unchangeable spirit. Our catechism also refers to him as the living and true God. It calls him the living God because he has life in himself. And all other life comes from him. And he is the true God because he really is. The lesser, lowercase g gods, false gods, only exist in the minds of idolatrous men and women, but he truly existed before there were humans or minds or even before there was any other thought outside of himself. And we, when we consider what he has made, the orderliness and complexity of creation, we see his wisdom and power And when we read of his self-revelation, which he has given in the book that you now hold in your hands, we see his holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Additionally, in the beginning, God had fullness of life and fellowship in and of himself. For he is one God Eternally existing as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is me speaking of the Blessed Trinity from which this congregation names itself. And we confess that the Trinity is a great mystery. We mortal created beings struggle to comprehend such truth. Which is why every analogy that we try to come up with to give a picture of the Trinity will, on some level, fail. And why wouldn't they? Because this God is utterly unique. The finite mind cannot comprehend the infinite. But one thing we do know is that God did not create us because he was lonely or because he needed anything. From before time, he enjoyed perfect fellowship and holy communion in himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. And he's also the all-powerful king. Listen to these words from Daniel 4. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. 
And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? You remember last week when Saul breaks under pressure? He gets scared and he offers the sacrifices himself and then Samuel shows up and is not happy. And Samuel asks Saul, what have you done? No one can say those words to this king. No one can stay his hand. This is the all-powerful king, the great king, and also the good king. And we know that he's powerful and great and good because look at what he does. The great king creates a place. We see this in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens And the earth, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. You know, the first description of earth is bleak. It's a place that is uninhabitable. No one could live there. But his work of making a place is only beginning. He's going to form and fill We see the Spirit hovering over the waters. And then God begins to speak. And from His Word alone comes everything that is. He creates the day and the night. He creates the oceans and the dry land. He creates all plant life. He creates the sun, moon, and stars. He fills the waters with fish and the skies with birds and the land with all kinds of animals. And as the powerful king completes his place, there is a refrain that we see over and over and over again. God saw it, and it was good. God has made a place, which John Calvin famously said, is the theater of his glory. And then we come to verse 26, and what do we see? The third ingredient for a kingdom. People. And listen for the Trinitarian language here. Let us make man in our image. After our likeness. This is the kingdom. We've got the all-powerful king. We have the king's place. And now we have the king's people who we're told He makes in His own image. On this day, He makes our first parents, Adam and Eve, the first man and woman. And what does God say about this kingdom? Again, it was all very good. Now here's an important question to ask. What does it mean that humanity is made in the image of God? Have you thought about that? For a long time, I would have answered it by simply saying, well, it means that humans have dignity and value and worth. Every single one, regardless of age and ethnicity and nationality. And that's true. But it's got to mean more than just that, doesn't it? Because look at the context 
following verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. You see what being made in the image of God means? To have dominion, to rule, to reign. The great king makes a miniature king and queen. And he puts them in their own special place, a place called Eden. And he tells them to rule, to exercise power and authority. They are to rule over this little place just as the great king rules over the cosmos. And that's why they're called his image bearers. They represent him. They reflect him in this world that he made. And then look at verse 28 of chapter 1. God blesses this little king and queen and says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over all other living things. You see, they are to make a royal family. A family that will grow and expand and extend not only their reign, but the reign of the great king. They're to grow this royal line and then go out and bring all things under his authority on earth. They are to expand the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. And all is perfect and good in this kingdom, at least for a little while. But then what happens? A rival kingdom slithers into the picture in Genesis 3. Now, this isn't a rival to the great king. Remember, he has no rival. No one can stay his hand. This is a rival to the miniature king and queen, to Adam and Eve, a a rival that wanted to undermine and corrupt and supplant the kingdom that they were to build in the garden and beyond. And what does this rival do? This, later we see him called this prince of the power of the air, this prince of unseen spiritual powers. What does he do? He goes to the queen and he questions the command of the great king. And he tells her that God's words were not true or good. He tells them that they had the power to be their own rulers over their own place. And what did the king and queen do? They listened to the serpent. They believed their rival. They rejected the command of the great king and their kingdom was corrupted and fell. I want to quote a theologian that many consider the greatest American theologian of all time. Jonathan Edwards who said this, Soon after the world was created, evil entered in. 
Satan rose up against God, endeavoring to frustrate his design in the creation of this lower world, to destroy his workmanship here, and to wrest the government of this lower world out of his hands and usurp the throne himself and set himself up as God of this world instead of the God that made it. And to these ends, he introduced sin into the world. And having made man God's enemy, he brought guilt on man and brought death and the most extreme and dreadful misery into the world. And we do see that's what happens in Genesis 3. And then following that, we see the fallout, don't we? The great king's people are afraid of him. They hear him in the garden and they hide themselves. They're ashamed and they attempt to cover themselves. They failed to do what they were created to do. And so now the ground that Adam was supposed to work and keep is cursed. His work will be hard and toilsome. And then for Eve, the process of multiplying the human race will be painful. And her relationships will be strained, especially with her husband. And then they would be cast out of the garden, driven out of that special place and never allowed to return. And in time they would die and be buried and return to the dust of the earth. And what makes matters worse is that the rival kingdom doesn't go away. From this point in Genesis on, all of humanity is split into two kingdoms. Those who submit to the lordship of the great king and those who submit to the reign of the serpent. Which means that as humanity multiplies and as people go out and as dominion is exercised, many aren't doing so to extend the reign of God on earth. They aren't extending truth and goodness and righteousness. They're establishing wickedness and darkness. Just think about Genesis 4 through 11. In chapter 4, Cain belonged to the rival kingdom. And he refuses to heed and submit to the great king's words. And he murders his brother, Abel. And then just like his parents, he is forced to leave his place and wander the earth. And then after Cain, it's not righteousness that expands and fills the earth, but wickedness. In Genesis 6, 5, we read, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of his thoughts, of the thoughts of his heart, was only evil continually. You think about a statement like that, and it looks like the serpent had won. His kingdom had expanded to the ends of the earth, so much so that there was only one righteous man left. On the face of the earth, there was one subject to the great king. His name was Noah. 
Most of us know what happened. All the kingdoms of the earth, all of those allied and extending the dominion of the serpent are drowned and destroyed beneath the waters of the great flood. The great king's place is made uninhabitable and only Noah's family and the animals survive. And then when the waters subside and they get out of the boat, have you noticed this? God gives Noah the same command he gives to Adam. It's in Genesis 9. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Noah, I want you to go multiply my image, extend my reign, rule over my place. You are the new Rulers of the earth, so go and spread my image and my word to the ends of this recently baptized earth. But what happens? These human rulers fail again. And in Genesis 11, in the narrative of the Tower of Babel, we have another example of people seeking to build their own kingdom in their own power for their own glory. So clearly, something else has got to happen. If the great king's reign and dominion is going to cover the earth, if the kingdom of earth is going to be, uh, if the kingdom is going to be established on earth, Someone else is going to have to do it. It's going to have to be a king after God's own heart. A king who loves the great king's words and feeds on them as his daily bread. A king who would obey the great king with perfect obedience. A king who by the spirit of God could multiply the people of God and disperse them To the ends of the earth. And we know that he does not do this by natural birth. But by a spiritual rebirth. We need a king who would work to destroy all the enemies of God. And bring them under his feet. A king who would destroy the works of the serpent and confound his schemes. And guess what? God speaks of him in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, 15. This is what theologians for millennia have called the first gospel. Because immediately following the fall of man in the garden, the great king promises that a child will come and Satan will do him violence The serpent would bruise his heel. But notice that the same injury would also crush the serpent's head. I mean, think of the cross. The greatest injury that the serpent could inflict upon this second and greater king would also be the thing that destroyed his power and robbed him of his subjects that he'd enslaved under sin and death. 
Dear saints, I want you to leave here this morning knowing that God's desire to reconcile fallen sinners and to bring rebellious men and women back into his kingdom is one that we see from the beginning of the Bible. It's not as some mistakenly believe that, well, the Old Testament God is the mean, grumpy, harsh God, and then the New Testament God, Jesus, is is nice. His desire immediately after the fall, from the very beginning, is to bring his people back. And so he makes a promise of grace. A promise that he will not abandon his people in his place to the serpent. And he begins working. Working to bring his people back into his kingdom and to extend its dominion to the very ends of the earth. On Friday, I was listening to, there's a daily podcast I follow. It's done by Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. It's called Things Unseen. I'd highly recommend it. I'll have a week go by of not listening to it, and then I'll pick it back up and then slap myself and think, why did I let a week pass? It's so good. But this week, Dr. Ferguson has been looking at the question that Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And on Friday, Dr. Ferguson focused on the title of the Son of Man, which he noted was Jesus' favorite title for himself. It's a title that has roots in the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel. And Dr. Ferguson ended his devotion this way, and it's how I'd like to end this morning. He says, What a glorious picture of Jesus Daniel is seeing. The Savior who would take our humanity as the Son of Man to undo what Adam did and to do what Adam failed to do. To regain dominion over all things and to bring to completion the purposes of the Most High. And when he had done that, to ascend on the clouds of heaven, to be crowned Lord at the Father's right hand, and then when all authority in heaven and on earth was given to him to spread his dominion by reigning in our lives. And so, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Son of Man, who for our sake became incarnate, was crucified, dead and buried, and was raised, and is now ascending and reigning at the right hand of the majesty on high. I hope that by pondering this amazing work of our great King, your your heart will be inflamed and will gladly join your lips as we sing with wonder and delight, Rejoice! Rejoice! Emmanuel has come to thee, O Israel. Let's pray. Almighty God, would you give us the eyes of faith to see? To see your son reigning and ruling.
Father, we know how we have failed and how our human race has failed. But one came and did what we were unable to do for ourselves. And Lord, he is seated seated in the position of all power. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he is making a place and a people and is sending those out to the very ends of this earth. And Lord Jesus, aren't we ourselves seated here this morning evidence of the truthfulness of his work? Lord, we remember that he lived in Israel. He made those promises in Jerusalem. And here we are in another country separated separated by a, a giant ocean in a small town in northeast Mississippi. And Lord, we can see that your kingdom is going forward. So Lord, may we rejoice with the hymn writer. May we rejoice with the angels, knowing that the promised one, the one spoken of in Genesis 3, has come, and he has conquered, and he is making all things new. We ask all of this in his name. Amen.